the Colorado Avalanche are going to the Stanley Cup final. It is Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks, home of the Stanley Cup playoffs as well. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Strantz, who also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Avenue Machinery. Transfer, last week we were talking about the the tantalizing possibility of the Stanley Cup final setting up as a kind of, you know, ultimate clash between hockey philosophies and hockey styles. One half of that is set. The Colorado Avalanche, team speed, team skill, going to the Stanley Cup final representing the Western Conference. Yeah, and you'll notice that it's finally sunny in Vancouver because all of the water supply in Western Canada is being used on Edmonton Oilers fans' tears. I can't believe the reaction last night. You know, like, this was a great run. Like, it wasn't a great run, but it was a very, very strong run. Six months ago, if you told Edmonton fans, hey, you're going to the conference finals? Yeah. Well, and they beat, they they won a battle of Alberta. And it was a scintillating battle of Alberta. And one other thing about this series, I know the Oilers got outclassed. I know that this was Colorado series from the jump. But those games were great. Like, game three and game four, they were close. Last night's game was fantastic. Oh, incredible hockey. They were close. They were entertaining. They were, it was great. Um, you know, I, I'm surprised by the sensitivity. I'm surprised by the, like I saw, um, I saw Post Media has this idea that the Oilers were denigrated because people pulled, posted like, uh, media outlets posted like very, very modest trolling posts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we really need to grow up here. Like we really need to, it's a loss in the playoffs. Like you get trolled when you lose. That's, that's. What Twitter is. That's what known to happen. social media is. And it's funny. It's a cottage industry. Like, there's, like, the regular jokes, the crying Jordan memes, the, you know, we, we need to get past the idea of this being, you know, offensive in any way. Teams lose. 31 NHL teams lose are eliminated at some point during any NHL season. Right? Every night you play a hockey game, one team loses. It's not offensive to joke about it. It's not classless to joke about it. Even if you're an objective reporter or a media organization, like you're allowed to post funny stuff online without we have to be able to tolerate that and just like have a laugh. Just grow up, have a laugh. Don't take yourself so seriously. Yeah, the uh, the kind of favorite term in the hockey world got a lot of use last night, which is a like classy or classless, oh, right? Like God. the ultimate hockey expression. Well, well, either the know, ultimate hockey compliment, calling someone classy, or the ultimate uh, hockey insult. Well, it's a good classless. chicken. It's a good chicken in the egg thing too. You know, we often talk about like the. You, we can all do it. We can all do the hockey player cliches. We can all just slip into it yeah. and you know give give this segment one hundred and ten percent, and we'll take it word by word. You know, we, we just got to be focused mm-hmm, on the big mm-hmm, picture. Mm-hmm. Like we're here, we've got a job to do. Um, you know, we're going to take a business like approach and and get our takes in deep today. You know, I mean, we can all we all know what it sounds like. We can all slip into it just because we know what it sounds like. But it's a chicken and an egg thing. Fans don't want interesting content in the sport, right? Charles Barkley wouldn't fly on an NHL broadcast. Uh, you know, we're not even used to hot takes, yeah. right? Like the idea of being wrong, and I, you know, I, I'm experienced in this. Um, the idea of being wrong is something that people are like, oh. Why do you have a job? It's like, well, you know, sometimes my job's not to be right all the time. It's just to be interesting in how I got there. You know, like sometimes it's fine to have takes and be wrong. Sometimes it's fine to make a joke. 
Sometimes it's fine to have some fun around a child's game that we all love and that brings communities together. Like, why, why, can't, why can't it just be fun? Why can't it just be simple? Why can't we just accept right. that losing is part of life? <laughs> Sorry, what was that? I'm not it. always right. <laughs> so you, you admitting to not always being right. Haver's <laughs> got it on record now. Yeah. We, we can always go back to Obviously, the I'm not always right. I mean, look at the, the Oilers. You know, it was it was easy for the Oilers against elite teams in the playoffs. Clearly, yes, I was wrong. Uh, six fifty, six fifty <laughs> is the Dunbar Lumber text line, and Rager texts in the same Oilers fans crying about getting picked on for five hours. Uh, were the same ones making fun of Leafs fans for the six hundred. Correct. Year. In a row, it's true, and they which, were right which, to do so. Which, by <laughs> they were that's totally funny. That's super funny. What's funnier than that? Even I troll Leafs fans. Yeah, and people think I am one. <laughs> Come on. Like they were completely within their rights to laugh and make fun of the Leafs, and but the the turnaround is you're going to get it a little bit. That's all right. Well, what happens? Go, we're going to go third. I mean, look, Canadian hockey fan bases. We are the anchorman battle, right? That that is the anchorman battle, and it's been thirty years without a cup, and no one wants to see. In my view, I know there's some very yes. casual Canada's fan, uh, Canada's team people, but um, you know, most hardcore hockey fans just want their team to be the like. They want, they want their team to be the one to break the drought. Right. And everyone says, like, does the streak matter to you? And it's only only, only if it's the Canucks that break it. Right? If another team breaks it, I'm going to downplay it for the rest of my life. Like, oh, well, so what? Another team won the cup. It's not special. I don't care about the streak. But if the Canucks do it, you're going to tell Leafs fans about it for years and years. I mean, that's how it works. It should be fun. It should be funny. The idea that it's being approached with any degree of seriousness, mind-boggling. Actually yeah. embarrassing. I'm embarrassed for anyone who's genuinely offended by a, you know, uh, Twitter meme in which the Oilers logo is wiped out to be replaced by the word losers. Like, who cares? It's not even offensive. No. there's There are so many legitimate things to get worked up about, both around the game of hockey, but also in the world in general. And a meme featuring, like, a broom flying across the screen, that is so far from one of them. Childish, completely childish, and and retire the word classless. Retire it, retire it. You like, mo- you know, if you think if you think a a meme making fun of your team for losing is classless, you wouldn't know class if it sat on your face. Oh wow, okay. Um, <laughs> that's a good turn there at the end. <laughs> head is uh, the, yeah, is the sure. statement usually head? I don't know. Whatever. Well, it was close enough. I, I thought get, I, get, I, get I was just trying to go. do an adage. I'm not trying to. I know. I know, be provocative. I know. I'm just joking. <laughs> Uh, again, 650-650 is the Dumber Lumber text line. Get your thoughts in. we got lots of Canucks talk uh, to get into today. But I do want to, before, you know, now we've kind of had our fun and uh, and said our piece about the Edmonton Oilers fan really, reaction. R- really high-level analysis. Yes, there. after they got knocked out and swept by the Colorado Avalanche last night. It is, you know, Edmonton is in a really, really interesting position. And they've kind of been in this position for the last several years, right? Ever since Connor McDavid and and Leon Draisaitl both kind of ascended to being top five players in the NHL, where you can never count the Oilers out, it feels like. But you also look at them and just they have these tremendous deficiencies in their roster, and now they're going into an off season where they went on this you know pretty impressive run, right? They get all the way to the third round, even though they get swept. You know, again, as I said, if you told people six months ago they were going to do that, I think all of them would have signed up for it. But they've also got some really challenging salary cap problems to deal with in the offseason. They've got some major questions, obviously, in goal with Evander Kane up and down the roster with what they're going to do. 
how vulnerable is Edmonton to potentially take a big step back next year, right? Is it like, do you see this as the start of a sustainable window of contention for the Oilers? Or is this a team that could be in a little bit of trouble here? I, I'm going to, I'm going to King Solomon this and say neither. I'm going to cut, I'm going to slice the baby up. They, uh, they are not in trouble. They are in a durable contention window for the playoffs. Right. They are not in a durable going to win and be there in the final four year after year, or even in the final eight, in my view, particularly because I see the Kings as a team on the rise with more avenues to improve quickly than anyone else in hockey. I see the Calgary Flames as a team, whether Johnny Gaudreau's resigns or not, every bit a, a contender quality roster next season, particularly if they manage Jacob Markstrom's minutes a bit better. And I see Vegas poised to bounce back for sure. Right? I, I, I mean, I want to see who they hire as their coach. Mm-hmm. I want to see... What moves they make, they do have some salary cap space to clear, but, you know, it, I, I mean, I think if you were handicapping Pacific Division teams to make the playoffs, I still think you have to have Vegas as the favorite. Would you have Calgary? Yeah, no, well, I mean, both, uh, I'd both expect, have major questions. I'd expect Vegas to be yeah, like I'd, minus 140. I'd probably take Vegas yeah, to be the no, sure. number one team in the Pacific next year. Like, if I was the bookie recommending it, I'd be like, yeah, Vegas, yeah, minus I, 140. I, I, mean, I don't want to give plus money to someone on Vegas winning, uh, making the playoffs. Come on, right? No question. Oh, no. So, and then, and then you know, the Canucks, how far are the Canucks behind Edmonton? I think it's material, but they do have the edge in net. So... You know, we'll see. I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a golf. Put it that way. I think it's more of a, of a, you know, scalable ravine. It's a lunch. It's a lunchtime endeavor, not a, not a, you know, um, five day right. cruise on a raft. So we'll sort of see exactly how the Pacific shakes out over the course of this off season. But you know, I, I think the Oilers are a safe playoff team. I don't see them as a contender, and I do think there's a real chance that this is the best supporting cast that McDavid. And Dreisaitl ever have. And then I want to come back to one last thing you said. Um, because this is it. I, I honestly think this is the whole the whole question summarized. You said, you know, w- with McDavid and Dreisaitl, they'll always have a chance, but. Yeah. And the word but does a lot of work in there. Because it refers to everything else about the roster. Pretty the, much. The, the defense, the goaltending, the prospects coming the lack of cap space, the lack of forward depth in the bottom six. It refers to pretty much everything. And no one ever says that about the great teams. And there's a reason for it. It's because the elite teams can go down a ton of things, like can go down to the studs and still like the Edmonton Oilers got swept by a team that was down their starter. For the latter two and a half games of the series, right? Yep. They were down their second line center for the latter half of game three and all of game four. And they were down their third highest play minutes defenseman, a top four defenseman, for all four games. Could the Oilers have sustained minus Bouchard, Smith, and Dreisaitl? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe maybe you don't so, want Kadri to be the dry side analog. Nugent Hyman. Hopkins. Hyman, Hyman or Nugent Hopkins. Yeah. Uh, no. No. It would have been a three-game series. A three-game sweep by the Avs. People would have, they would have invoked the little-known and rarely used mercy rule <laughs> in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And it's the same, it's the same, by the way, 
in the game we're going to watch tonight, the Rangers-Tampa series, where the Lightning can be without Braden Point, and you're never saying, well, yeah, the Lightning, but... They swept, like, they swept the President's Trophy winner without Braden Point in the lineup. They, they could find a way to do it, right? And, and you're not captioning it that way. Whereas with the Rangers, you're saying, Shesterkin always gives you a shot, but... And then going on to list the, the reasons they're not elite. People sometimes ask me, like, what's your definition of elite? And it's based on a few things, but, you know, largely my view of, uh, of a five-on-five gear. Plus, you have to have a baseline level of, of quality goaltending. Plus, you need to have good special teams. So it's, it's, it's not defined perfectly, but it's are you basically a top 10 five-on-five team that also has its bases covered in the other areas? That's, to me, how you become a team that I, that I call elite. And, and but, but, sorry, really quickly, that that for me is it. But we could just go with the butt rule. When you talk about them, do you, do you say, you know, these guys always give them a chance, but, or do you know better? Yeah. If you know better, you know it when you see it. And, and there you go. That's it. And I will say the thing with the way Edmonton is constructed, and again, there's the difference between being a contender for the playoffs and being a contender for the Stanley Cup. And yeah, I, I would absolutely have them as a, a strong perennial contender for the playoffs. But when so much of the value on your team comes from just two roster spots, right? Comes from Connor McDavid only on dry settle, you're really vulnerable to things like injuries to those players or even just like a down season. You know, it could happen. One of them could have a down season at some point, right? And if Injury that does, plays, maybe. Yeah. But if that does <laughs> happen, I mean, Leon Dreisaitl, we'll see what he was playing through. Yeah. If that's something that could linger into next year, right? But you're really, really vulnerable to bad luck in a way that the teams up above them in the standings aren't. So, yeah, if, if we're talking about it right now, I would pick Edmonton to make the playoffs next year. But there's always going to be that uncertainty and that kind of volatility in their performance because they are so incredibly reliant uh, on just the two players at the top of the lineup. Uh, I want to get into some of the uh, Canucks talk now. Uh, we'll, we'll leave the Oilers uh, <laughs> we'll leave the Oilers and Oilers fans to their woes for the moment. But we started talking about it yesterday in the show, and uh, you've christened it uh, the Extendables Week at The Athletic, and obviously looking at the situations with the Canucks and Brock Besser, Bo Horvat, JT Miller, all eligible in one form or the other for extensions this offseason, all, all obviously extremely key, important pieces for the Vancouver Canucks. And today, what we wanted to get into was trying to kind of map out what some comparable contracts around the league look like for each of those players. And I think it's an interesting exercise to do today. We saw a, a center get signed. Now, it's it's farther down the kind of talent hierarchy in the NHL, but Jack Roslevic in Columbus getting two years and $4 million. And I think I've seen a lot of people online kind of react to that and say, wow, he's getting $4 million. But to me, what it really, really enforces is centers get paid. And typically centers get paid maybe more than you're expecting when you're looking at it a year or two years out from when they're going to get their next deal. And I think that is very, very important to keep in mind when you're talking about, obviously, JT Miller, who played center full-time more or less this year, and, of course, Bo Horvat, who does, you know, wins all the face-offs, all that, checks a lot of boxes for your kind of traditional strong center down the middle. You know, we, we've always, fans always do this where they try to kind of find a way, okay, how can we get these guys signed to team-friendly deals? But I think the baseline assumption for both Miller and Horvat as productive centers is 
they're going to be very, very expensive, right? Like they're and probably more expensive than I think a lot of people would have guessed even a few months ago. The range that I'm sort of pegging for for Bo is is somewhere between probably seven five and and eight five. I think the eight to eight five part of that's a little high, but the hurdle comp puts that very much in play. As does the fact that you know if he goes to market and the cap goes up another million and a half or two million next year, which is very possible in a world without COVID restrictions. Knock on wood that we get that. Um, you know, I think, I think you're very much looking at that sort of valuation. Um, you know, will the Canucks hope for a Ryan Nugent Hopkins style, uh, team friendly settlement? Yeah, of course. If they can get it done, kudos backslaps all around, but you know, you can't, you can't as a, as a, as someone prognosticating it, I can't pull that comp out of nowhere, particularly when Ryan Nugent Hopkins is like, you know, 400 points for his 650. Like, he's a more productive player than Bohorovic. He's not a full-time center, but nonetheless, I mean, that's a, that's a unique situation that Ryan Nugent Hopkins agreed to. Wanted to stay with the team that he'd been in. Hopefully, the Canucks are able to pull something similar off, but you can't count on well, it. Well, that's the thing. There's objective. There's, there's one person who can make that happen, and that's Bo Horvat, right? Like, there's a, there's a world that exists where Bo Horvat makes that decision and says, you know what? The most important thing for me is to stay in Vancouver this is the team that drafted me. This is where I started my career. I want to be here for as long as possible. And because it's so important to me, I'm willing to kind of do the team a little bit of a solid and help them build a winner around me. Like, there's a world that that exi- where that exists, but I, I don't – like we're, we can't read Bo Horvat's mind. We don't know if that's yeah. what he's thinking. And that's one kind of extreme team-friendly path, but there are a lot of other paths where this could go where the number starts to get significantly higher in the future, especially if Bo Horvat ever decides – you know what? I really want to. I really want to look at what my market value would be on the open market. I really want to test the UFA waters. And if that happens, and you know he's twenty eight, and let's say he plays the same role in the power play next year, and he's coming off back to back thirty goal seasons, or or he hits forty, yeah, and he's kill, he's killing penalties now and doing it really well. He's the captain. He, he was he nine goals off. off, nine goals off forty with eleven games to play. I mean, not likely, but not outside the realm of possibility. Particularly when you consider that he also dealt with. Two weeks of substandard play due to the the pandemic and also the brutal shooting luck that the club had in yep. the first 25 games of the year. I mean, it's not un- outrageous to say that Horvat could easily be a 40-goal scorer heading into an unrestricted free agent year, plus have a 55 50 to 60% face-off clip, plus be a matchup center for a team that maybe even mm-hmm. makes the playoffs. I mean, killing penalties, you know, wearing yeah. the C, all of those things. And you, you just run down the resume that he could very easily this none of this is far fetched or fanciful right that he could be going to unrestricted free agency under 30 with that kind of resume guys like that don't hit the open market very often when they do they get extremely extremely well compensated his statistical profile is almost identical to tomash hurdles almost identical there's there's very little separation between the two in terms of both career points per game and points per game in in the season in which this you know hurdle yeah. signed his deal um, you know, Bo Horvat has the exact same career points per game, although didn't quite have the platform year, like didn't produce like, Couturier signed his, you know, eight times $7.7 million deal coming off a season, which his offensive production exploded, but career points per game, Couturier and Horvat are identical. Now Couturier is a perennial Selkie candidate when he's healthy. I think there's a material difference in terms of their two-way play, but certainly there's an argument that gets him into that range. 
or just below it. And so, you know, I, th- I sort of think the Canucks' sweet spot will probably be, you know, low $7 million, $7.5 million range, but that's a lot of money. And then you look at JT Miller and you're looking at an 8 to $9 million range, and he could get higher than that too. You know, the, the, the risk that we're off on these projections is mostly on the high end in the event that the player goes to unrestricted free agency and someone gets silly about it. Um, and then you throw in the Besser thing. Now, we did our comparables piece today and Besser's really hard to find comparables for because of that QO the platform year salary that he has like that was a pretty rel- that was a pretty recent development really exclusive to the summer of 2019 when it occurred and that was an unprecedented RFA class you'll remember Marner you'll remember Point you'll yeah. remember Kachuk you'll remember Lion A uh, you'll remember Timo Meyer. Timo Meyer, by the way 10 million dollar platform year salary he's gonna have a 10 million dollar QO next year Scored 35 goals this year. I don't think you're too worried about it if you're San Jose. But if he doesn't perform, that becomes a really interesting one to watch. The San Jose situation is oh, <laughs> dreadful. It's very, very, I'll, I'll say interesting. I'll take the diplomatic approach. Dreadful. That's a topic for another day. But yeah, what a bizarre situation. Out there. Brutal. Anyway, rewind back to Besser. So Besser's, there aren't a lot of cohorts for Besser. But one of them is Patrick Lyonet. Legitimately. So... Lyonet comes in the league. Besser actually has a higher career points per game than Patrick Lyonet, which sort of surprised me. Uh, but Lyonet had that dreadful 11-goal, 26-point season. Um, it was the pandemic-abbreviated season. He was traded midway, so he had to quarantine, so he only played 46 games. But nonetheless, that's a brutal season. That's the equivalent of Besser having had 33 points this year. Uh, we would have talked about it a lot uh-huh. if that had been the case. Columbus qualifies him. Lyonet accepts the offer. Okay. Easy. 7.5 million one-year deal for Patrick Lyon last season, and he bounced back. Point-per-game guy. Good for him. This tells us that the history of, and it's not a big history, not a big sample, but historically speaking, players in this type of situation accept their qualifying offer. And and yes, Lyon's situation is more dramatic than Besser's. His, his off year in his platform season was far more off than, than Besser's was. But nonetheless, I think that's a really instructive example that sort of drives home why in handicapping this, I've, I've kept coming back to 7.5 times 1 is the most likely contract outcome for Besser this offseason. Now, you have to account for the possibility, too, that the club could find a way to thread the needle and come up with a compromise settlement. Obviously, that would be the best for Vancouver. It could be the best for Besser if you structured the deal right. We'll see where that one goes. Now, we built this list of comparable RFAs, uh, guys like DeBrus, guys like Vrana, guys like Mantha, guys who performed or, or scored uh, between a 0.5 and 0.9 clip in their uh, platform year. Besser was a 0.66, so sort of smack dab in the middle of that, uh, maybe on the lower end. Max Domi. Only one of those guys, Kevin Fiala is another one. I don't know why I'm just continuing to say names. All of those guys with one exception, signed third contracts that came in well beyond the value of their platform year salary, right? Like, no one takes the step back that Canucks fans are hoping Besser does. There's one exception to that rule. It's Jake DeBrusque. And we all know how the mechanics and the dynamics of DeBrusque's trade request played into him accepting, you know, uh, a more team-friendly contract to try and facilitate 
the ease with which he could be moved on from the Boston Bruins. That's the only exception to that rule. Not exactly an analogous situation for Besser. So when you look at the historical precedent, I do think it crystallizes, or should crystallize, just how difficult this circumstance is going to be for Rutherford and Alvin to navigate, particularly if the goal is to get Besser on a deal that isn't one times 7.5. The Besser thing in large part has always just been kind of a math problem, right? Because not only can he take the 7.5 qualifying offer this year, right? But if he does that and he plays the one year at 7.5, he'd be eligible for a $7.5 million qualifying offer the following season as well, right? And that would be his final RFA year before going into unrestricted free agency. So in a sense, now it's not it's not guaranteed, but in a sense, if you're in the Besser camp, you can look at that as basically a two-year deal worth a total of $15 million. There's a little bit of uncertainty, right? Because if your play drastically dips or there's any injury concerns or something, you might not be uh, given that qualifying offer the following year. But you can feel pretty good about basically having two years, $15 million on the table. So if you're the Canucks... You have to offer enough money over $15 million to make it worth Brock Besser's while to sign the deal, right? And that's why, you know, three at 6.5, okay, that gets you to just under $20 million. Is that enough of a bump to kind of make him forego a year of unrestricted free agency? I wonder if you even have to go another year beyond that, right? You go four by 6.5, but you're always starting with that kind of two years, $15 million baseline, and then you could be a UFA right after that. That's a very kind of enticing situation for a player to be in. And the question is, can the Canucks offer enough years beyond that? Are they willing to go beyond that, uh, that Brock Besser decides, you know what, I'm going to lock in right now and do it? As you said, there's there's there seems to be reporting indicating that that's at least a possibility. But it's also just, you know, that that two years and 15 million is always going to be a pretty interesting option for a player in Buster's situation as well. You have to make it work for the player. And honestly, they're, the way to do it, the, the most straightforward way to do it, right, especially if you want to limit the term, because obviously the, the easiest way to do it is to just go long on term and it's not an issue Yeah, um, because you're buying unrestricted free agent seasons and you end up with a AAV that's not too far off anyway. If you really want to control the AAV on a short-term deal, then you have to offer the player something. You know, you, it's not going to be out of the goodness of their heart. And the way to do it is to front load the deal and provide a ton of salary so that there is no actual. What's better, seven point five million paid in paragraph one salary over eight months, or six and a half million up front the day you signing sign? Signing bonus, right? Yeah. I mean, especially if you're a foreign national, because there's all sorts of flexibility that that gives you in terms of protecting yourself from taxes. So. You know, you do that, and then you get two additional years of security. You make a nod to the QO, and the players all of a sudden not spending two years completely gambling on themselves. That seems like a decent way to compromise, but requires a lot of upfront spending, right? It's not something that teams do willy-nilly. I mean, maybe the Leafs, right? Maybe the Habs. But, you know, this Canucks team, particularly with the way that they function during the pandemic, I'm not sure we expect them to behave that way. So we'll see if they can bridge the gap. I just think it's a massive test. Like it's one of those it's one of those things where I'm not setting it up to criticize Rutherford and Alvin should they be unable to get it done. Not that I do this anyway. Just like this is one where I don't think it's going to be fair to criticize the organization if Besser accepts the QO. Yeah. I think it'll be fair if they don't qualify him to question whether or not that's uh, too much lost value considering where this club is at in their 
I, I and I and I think it would be. Yeah, I think you I, have to protect yourself. I would be very surprised if they don't qualify. Like, no, no, really? Surprised. I mean, I've reported to the Athletic. I don't think that's going to yeah, happen. Yeah. Um, and I don't think the arbitration route's going to happen either. So, you know, I think you can be critical of the way that it's handled. But if this outcome results in, in Besser taking his QO, that's the most likely outcome because of the structure of his deal. And there's nothing really that you can do to change that. If you do, if you can, you've pulled a rabbit out of the hat. It's a great escape, but you don't get criticized for failing to make a great escape. You just get kudos if you do it. Especially because they didn't put themselves in the bind in the first place. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they didn't sign the contract no, this is an inherited, that sets up this dilemma. This is an inherited grenade. And and one thing I'd also add, you know, I think it's fair to criticize the structure of the Besser deal. But you also have to note that a lot of teams had this structure for their RFAs in that summer. And, and it's predicated on the idea that the cap was going to go up. Right? I mean, the idea that the cap would be... At ninety-five million by now, so seven point five wasn't quite seven point five in, in what it meant in two thousand nineteen. Yeah. Well, global pandemic occurs uh, four months later, starts four months later, really kicks into gear six months later, and the caps s- still at basically the same level. And seven point five means exactly what it meant in two thousand nineteen. You know, should teams have been more prudent about the risks here? Perhaps, but I'm not getting worked up criticizing. There, there's a lot of other things I'll get worked up criticizing former Canucks management for. This actually kind of isn't one of them. Well, escalating salaries over the course of a contract is very standard practice, not just in the NHL, but across the world of sports, right? Like, that that's a very, very typical contract structure. And as you said, given what was foreseeable at the time, you know, I, I don't I don't recall anybody at the time when the Brock Besser deal was signed saying, whoa, whoa, hold on, wait about that. What about that qualifying offer in the third year, right? Like... <laughs> did you did you raise it okay well there you go pat yourself on the back but it was not seen as what it turned into right as a really really potentially difficult situation for the team yeah i mean i i thought that it enhanced the risk on the canucks side but i didn't think that it was going to be this great of risk because yeah. the flat cap changed it yeah right but i i do think there were risks inherent in structuring deals in this manner um the Besser situation being an instructive one, and and we'll see how the Canucks navigate it. It's going to be a very high stakes game for them to to get it right. This is a very good player. This is a high character person. Um, he's an asset to this club. Period. And I don't mean in terms of a trade asset. I mean in terms of being a really really good player. Point seven nine points per game for his career. I don't know that people appreciate even how just how dynamic and productive Besser has been. In his Canuck, he might be the most underrated Canucks player, to be totally honest with you. So, you know, getting this right is crucial. Retaining him is absolutely essential, non-negotiable. But figuring out a way to do it in, in as team-friendly a structure as possible is is also big because seven point five. I mean, that's the era. That's the that's the sort of echelon for which only the absolute best of the best um, are paid and. You got to find a way if you can to mitigate the term, and and that applies too to Horvat and Miller as much as you know this team would like to. Uh, lots of great texts coming in about uh, Miller, Horvat, Besser, what the Canucks should do to navigate those situations. Keep them coming. Six fifty, six fifty is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We'll read some on the other side. Don't forget to subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please do leave us a five-star rating and review. More coming up on the other side. It's the Canucks Hour on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. We could just go with the butt rule. 
Welcome back to the Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Your home with the Canucks, Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance here with you for another segment as we continue to dive into the Canucks contract extension dilemmas facing them. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. It's a really interesting exercise to kind of go through, statistically, based on comps around the league, what the next deals might look like for Besser and Miller and Horvat. And I do think it's interesting, just based on the reaction we've got uh, a little bit on social media, but also into our 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line, I do think there's an element of sticker shock uh, for a lot of listeners, for a lot of Canucks fans, when we start talking about these numbers. And I'll just read a couple of texts that come in, right? This one comes in. Uh, unsigned, it says trade Miller, Horvat, and Besser. While their value is high, the NHL contract structure is so backwards. Why are we paying players for past success? There's no way these players are going to be worth that much money halfway through their next contract. This one comes in as well. Welcome to unrestricted free agency. <laughs> yeah, that's that's, uh, that, that's why unrestricted free agency is often the bane of teams' existence uh, a couple years after they signed those deals. This one comes in unsigned. If Horvat wants $7 million plus, you trade him. Pretty simple, no argument. Uh, his points are super inflated this year due to the condensed schedule and the dip in save percentage. I would never count on Horvat scoring 30-plus again. Look, I think, as I said in the first segment, if he's playing the same role on the power play, right, and the power play looks roughly the same as it did this year, he is going to score a bunch of goals. He's a, Bo Horvat's a really good goal scorer. He's, like, be- he's become a master in the bumper. Think about it this way. Think about it this way. The Canucks don't even have a righty on the half wall, which you know would actually make him more lethal. Yep. And he's still one of the best bumper players. I mean, Patrice Bergeron's number one. You'd put Pavelski up in the up in the upper echelon. You'd put Nazem Kadri, um, Braden Point, and then probably Horvat. I, I mean, honestly, maybe, maybe you know what? Sorry, T.J. Oshie. I forgot about T.J. Oshie, who absolutely belongs in the top five. But but, but Horvat's in that next tier. He's incredibly good at it. At it, like he's. He's become exceptional at finding space. And, of course, it's not just about identifying the soft areas, sliding into it, quick release. It's also the retrieval side of it. It's being Johnny on the spot along the wall. Horvat is so good at that. He's really an underrated figure on the Canucks power play. Like He's so important to what they're able to accomplish there. This one uh, came in on social media as well. Taze5 on Twitter says, anything over seven, you trade Bo Horvat. Anything over eight, you trade JT Miller. And the interesting thing with Horvat in particular is, you know, so often fans in one city, right, will say that their players don't get enough respect from other teams, right, or from other people around the league. And, you know, especially on the West Coast. Until it comes to project their next deal. Especially on the West Coast. Like, oh, people out east, they don't watch Bo Horvat. They don't know. I think here in Vancouver, people underrate how valued Bo Horvat would be around the league, right? I, I, like, I think people would be surprised how much everyone else around the league really, really likes Bo Guy Horvat. I was very as a probably going to make Team Canada. Yeah, the it, the toughest roster of forwards to crack in the hockey world. Yeah, very probably was going to go there uh, and play a fourth line role. But still, I mean, Team Canada, he was absolutely in consideration. I mean, that's. There's no higher testament to how the industry views a guy. 
You know, that, and and think about think about the Hockey Canada selection group too, right? You're talking about Doug Armstrong. You're talking about you know a coterie of NHL GMs working with a bunch of the best NHL coaches. That you know tells you tells you everything you need to know. I I think it's I, I'm going to blame Bick, but Bo Horvat is deeply underrated. Bick will Bick will wear that for sure. He'll, <laughs> he'll he will gladly wear that. But okay, look as as much as. You know, maybe where people are um, underrating how how valued Horvat is around the league. I do understand the kind of sticker shock reaction once you start doing the exercise for all three players, right? Because then all of a sudden it's not just oh, okay, you're committing seven or seven point five million to Bo Horvat. You're also committing eight million to JT Miller. You know, six and a half to seven million to Brock Besser, and then you start to get into wow, you just gave out an awful lot of money in term to these three players to basically keep together. A team that really hasn't proven all that much outside of a really hot, uh, you know, final two thirds or three quarters of the season under Bruce Boudreau, and then you start to really get okay into the question of well, how on earth is this going? Is this team going to improve if they do make all of those decisions? And I, I think it's worth kind of gaming that out a little bit, right? Like if they do decide that you know what, JT Miller and Bo Horvat are too valuable. We love the depth that gives us down the middle, and we. You know, the numbers aren't out of whack, as Jim Rutherford put it. They're, the numbers are in whack, and he can, they can get them signed to deals. In whack. <laughs> if, if something can be out of whack, certainly it can be in whack. I don't know about that. I think you're incorrect. Yeah, I, I, think think that I, is, I think that is, I mean, errors and omissions. I don't think anything can be in whack. I'm just saying, logically. I mean, you can go to Chilliwack and be in the whack. In the whack. But you cannot be in whack. But... Is there a reasonable path forward if they do lock up all three of the extendables? If they extend all three of the players we're focusing on this week? Like, what does that, what are the domino effects if they hope to build that Stanley Cup contender and they choose to go that route? Well, not to spoil tomorrow's article at The Athletic. Ooh. <laughs> but let's get into this a little more tomorrow. Um, we're going to do the long-term cap projection Fair tomorrow. Fair enough. Because that's the necessary first step, right? First we do risk and reward. Then we do the you know, comparables, the historical comparables, try and get a little more granular on what the next deals could look like, try and get an objective range, and then we get into exactly what that looks like. And and then we'll do some more stuff over more, the, th- on Thursday and Friday. More texts coming in, uh, you know, unsigned. Horvat was not making Team Canada. Get a grip. This one uh, from Dave in Vancouver. If you think Horvat would have been on Team Canada, I challenge you to look and see who would have been the fourth line center on that team? Last time I checked, Ryan O'Reilly is on a different level than Horvat. You're being a typical Canucks fan and overvaluing our players like everyone does. Uh, that's from Dave in Vancouver. No, well, I, I'm uh, just listening to Elliot Friedman. If yeah, if I had, I'm pay, sorry, if I had been in charge of picking Team Canada, Bo Horvat probably not on the team. Yeah, outside looking in, L- listening to the people who who know the process and are familiar with the process, they were saying Bo Horvat was going to be on the team. This is not my opinion. No, this is relaying what the most plugged in insider in the game had to say about the situation. Correct. It's not my I, again. No. If if he would he have been one of the 14 forwards I picked? No, probably not. But that's not how. That's my point. Is that here in this city we don't look at him in quite the same way as people from other cities do. The point is, is that Horvat's inclusion potentially in a in a hypothetical world where Omicron didn't cause a ton of chaos uh, this past winter, Horvat's inclusion in Team Canada was very much a, a realistic possibility. It was very much in whack. There you go. <laughs> 
a thing I'll never say again, and I hate myself for saying <laughs> in the first place. So look, this is really where I think the reason we've decided to spend all of this time navel gazing on on these particular contractual situations is that you know I think it speaks to the fundamental quandary quagmire, if you will, that that Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford have inherited here, right? Which is, you know, you've got this team where you like a lot of the core pieces, right? There is a chance that, you know, if Pedersen doesn't level up and Quinn Hughes doesn't also level up even further, although he had a tremendous season and, and Elias Pedersen had a tremendous second half, they're not at that level at their very best with, with a high level of consistency. There is a very real possibility that the contention that the Canucks, like the, the best players on the next great Canucks team are here is wrong, right? There is a chance. But I'd bet on Pedersen and Hughes, personally, despite my reputation for negativity, I believe that with Demko, Hughes, Pedersen, you've got the foundation of a really good start, right? It's just that around them, right, you've got a bunch of star-level players whom, who, to a man, are about to get prohibitively more expensive in the years ahead. The, you know, the delta on Miller's raise plus Horvat's raise, you know, very, very well could be $5 million on its own, and then Besser's an additional one five if the QO gets accepted, right? So that's $6.5 million. That's That's a top-line player. That's a top-pair defenseman, right? I mean, that's not insignificant even if it feels more manageable than when we're throwing out numbers that total 23 to 25 million right so and it's not just them because you then have hoaglander who's going to come up at the same time as miller and horvat and you hope that hoaglander produces more like he did in his rookie year than last year but either way you're looking at a two something like that you're you're at the very least looking at a one and a half million dollar player um you know at the at the very low end and then the next year, you've got Pedersen and Pod Colson. And if Pedersen and Pod Colson aren't worth significant raises in the summer of 2024, you're kind of up a creek anyway. So you better hope. You better hope that you've got more cap headaches to come in 2024. Um, and then the expirings during this run really come down to Tyler Myers. Like Tyler Myers, the big expiring that comes off the books during this sort of rolling run in which key players get more expensive. Well, you know, that becomes really difficult to navigate while you're also trying to significantly up, uh, upgrade the quality of the blue line, while you're also trying to flesh out the roster with additional depth and additional speed and all the other things that we know the Canucks need to be, you know, a team that you don't have to say, well, you know, Demko, if he's on there, they're in every game but, right? If you're trying to get to a level above that, can you do it while keeping this core together? That That is the big question, and that is the big you know, a quagmire effectively that, that Rutherford and Alvin need to be very careful and sharp about navigating this off season. I've never seen, um, I've never seen the statement that a player on the Canucks was in the mix for team Canada, which is like objectively a really positive complimentary thing to say about a player be so controversial in the Sportsnet 650 Dunbar Lumber text. Well, people inbox. love, people love hockey Canada takes people are, it's true. And I, I count myself among them. Like, the, oh, the, yeah. the cliche of, oh, we have time to fill on free agency day. We're going to, like, pick the next Team Canada. I love it. Yeah, I, me too. I am always there for always it. Always there for it, too. It's fantastic. But, man, people are 
fired up in both directions on this. To be fair, Amro the actor sex in Horvat was absolutely in consideration. People are out to lunch. The guy could have been played as a bottom six winger. He's a very valuable player. Uh, Cody the escort texts in Team Canada. Ha ha ha. Freeman said Horvat was a possibility. Settle down, fellas. Uh, and then he uh, includes something that I can't read on the air to but, tell us but to relax. Is that not what we're well. saying? Yeah, we're saying we didn't say he was a lock. In consideration, there was a good chance. Yeah. It was a good chance, which I think is fair. Like, what? There would have been 14 forwards on that team, right, that they would have taken. So I think he probably would have been in the mix from, like, 13 to 16, something yeah. like that. With, okay. He had a good chance of making it. With the ability with the ability to win draws, right, and and play either position, and the, and the rep as a big game guy being sort of what maybe set him apart from a winger, right? We know that Hockey Canada likes to play a million centers. They like to bring centermen to... to you know, tournaments, especially to Olympic tournaments. That was going to be in Horvat's favor. I don't know why this is controversial at all. I, this is just matching the highest quality reporting surrounding the assembly of the team at the time. That's it. Yeah. It's also just, it, it's it's very funny to me, as I said, that saying that a player was going to achieve this incredible honor, like, why does that make you upset? <laughs> you, yeah, you know like, what I mean? It's like, that would be a good thing. I, like, that's, that's awesome. That would be an incredible feather in his cap, an incredible accomplishment. For Bo Horvat, if he had made uh, if he had made Team Canada, I'm not exactly sure why that's. I don't know. People angering are angering people so much. I, I think pe- uh, maybe some of the tweets are um, uh, aimed at uh, aimed at the people who denigrated the Great Edmonton Oilers Hockey Club. I yes. think I think people are just uh, perhaps conflating the the emotional stakes of those two. Incidents. Maybe uh, maybe we're being classless by bringing up the fact that Bo Horvat definitely unprofessional. <laughs> Bo Horvat, <laughs> yeah. Favors uh, in yeah. the producer's chair today. I'm curious to get your guys' thoughts on this because I feel like the 4C for Canada is probably like Ryan O'Reilly, like that type of player. Did Bo Horvat pass Ryan O'Reilly this year? Or does he do that in the next two years of like a more valuable center to Team Canada? Because I think that's the guy that right now, if you look at centers with You'd Canada, he's probably the guy. Yeah, but of course, you don't. Centers don't always play center. Bergeron's a career winger for Hockey Canada, and Pat- Patrice Bergeron's. Pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. Stamkos is a career winger for Hockey Canada, right? I, I mean, there's a lot of guys who um, who match that description. I'm just trying to go through, like, some of the classic lines that we've seen. But there's a lot. Mike Richards was a, always a winger for Hockey Canada uh, after, after the U20 level. Um, obviously a career center. So, you know, you, you go up and down. Hockey Canada likes to bring a lot of extra centermen. I, I wouldn't have seen Horvat as needing to supplant Ryan O'Reilly although I will say I do think Ryan O'Reilly lost some of his fastball this year I still would have him on my team Canada over Bo Horvat but you know I I don't think it's outrageous to think that he could get to that level in the next year or two for sure well and also I will point out he doesn't act to make the team you don't have to be one of the 12 best forwards right like they take they take extras you don't have to surpass Ryan O'Reilly at center as you said you can play (laughs) on the wing you can there are other paths you can fill in you can fill in as uh, in the Rob Zamner Memorial <laughs> yes. Memorial roster spot. Like yes. like uh Chris Draper made a team Canada for the Olympics. For the Olympics. Rob Zamner, like we're what are we talking about? We always have one of these guys. We always have one of these guys. Every Olympics we have one of those guys who Hockey Canada brings for intangible reasons. Yeah. What do, like what, what what are you getting worked up about? Outrageous, pure, purely outrageous. Um, quickly before we get out, people are still fired up. But if before we get out, uh, Tampa, New York, are you? Uh, you're still all in 
on the Tampa Bay Lightning completing the comeback here? Why, why wouldn't Why wouldn't I be? Uh, the difference in save percentage in the first three games of the series is 940-plus for Shesterkin and the New York Rangers and 880 for Vasilevsky and the Tampa Bay Lightning. And the goal differential is Rangers plus three. If you get 940 goaltending while your opponent gets 880 goaltending over three games and you haven't buried the back-to-back Stanley Cup champs, you're in trouble. No matter what it looks like. I know the Rangers have the lead. I know the margins are tight for Tampa Bay. But man, if you can't put a team away when they when they can't get saves, I, from Andre Vasilevsky, Andre Vasilevsky, who, by the way, do you want to bet on Andre Vasilevsky being 880 or below over the latter parts of the series? No chance. He's going to figure it out. So are the Tampa Bay Lightning. There you go. You'll be able to hear that game tonight on the Sportsnet 650 Airwaves. The People Show. Bick Nazar, Randy Janda. It's up next. We will be back tomorrow. You're listening to the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.